0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Uh, Hi, everybody. Uh, um, Do you mind if I, I hope this doesn't make too much. Hi, everyone. Um, Welcome to the Skirball Cultural Center. Uh, My name is uh, Andy Horowitz and I'm the director of programs here. And it is, yep, oh, thank you. It is my great, great pleasure to welcome you here for the final reading of the Emerging Voices Fellows of the Penn Center USA, 2017. Um, Yes, give them a round of applause and keep doing it all night long. We are so thrilled to have these wonderful writers here today. Um, Is anyone coming here to the Skirball for the first time? Oh, we've got a bunch of newbies. Hi, welcome. Um, Let's see, I had a bunch of stuff. Come back this summer. We have free concerts every Thursday night, starting this Thursday with Sean Watkins and friends doing a tribute to Paul Simon. Um, But for those of you who don't know, I'll give you a really quick tongue twistery mission statement. The Skirball Cultural Center is a place of meeting guided by the Jewish value of welcoming the stranger and inspired by the American democratic ideals of freedom and equality. We are, yeah. Oh, but there's more. We are a place where people of all communities and generations come to participate in cultural experiences that foster human connections, inspire discovery and hope, and inspire us to help build a more just society. Now you can. Now I'm done. That's done. Um, it's a mouthful, but it bears repeating. Um, and uh, I don't know why, but ever since January, I've been getting applause with that. Um, I have two quick announcements to make. Um, one, there's a black Mercedes in the parking lot with its lights on. If that you think that might be yours, you can wait till the lights dim and then go. <laughs> no, um, and then um, there's a pair of black reading glasses with little tiny diamonds on them that got turned into our um, front uh, desk. So if that, those are yours, you can go ask about that. Um, Let's see, does anybody have their phone on them? Yeah? Yeah? Oh, okay, great. Could you turn it off? (laughs) Um, This would be a great time out of respect to the readers and your fellow uh, audience members to turn off your phones, your cell phones, your iPads, your iPhones, your Tamagotchis, your Nintendos, PSPs, whatever. Um, So at this point, I will stop talking. I will replace the mic and I will ask you to please give a warm, warm welcome to the Executive Director of Penn Center USA, Michelle Frankie.
1: Hi everyone, it is great to see you. My name is Michelle Frankie, and I'm the Executive Director of Penn Center USA. We're the West Coast branch of Penn International, the literary arts and human rights nonprofit. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the 2017 Emerging Voices final reading. Emerging Voices, EV as we call it, is a literary mentorship program that provides new writers who are isolated from the literary establishment with the tools, skills, and knowledge they need to launch a professional writing career. The fellowship happens because many people donate their time to it, And all of them are thanked in your program, so please take a look. I do have to say one major thank you from the stage though, Amanda Fletcher, Program Manager. (laughs) Amanda did really incredible work this year. I detail it also in your program, so please take a look at that as well. And we're really proud of you, so thanks for everything that you did. Uh, The EV Fellowship includes many unique and life-changing components, a professional mentor, UCLA workshops, 25 private meetings with authors, agents, editors, and more. I usually talk at length about these components at the final reading, because we're really proud of them, but this year I'd like to talk about something different. For over 30 years, Penn has focused its work on people and communities threatened by silence. Not only journalists, but children, women, people of color, the LGBTQ community, the homeless, senior citizens, cancer patients, veterans, and the list goes on. Our goal in each case is to enter a community and begin by listening. To help people discover their own stories, to nurture their voices, and to make sure their stories find audiences. We do this because it's our deeply held belief that words, writing, reading, and sharing them, strengthen communities, and that writing, as Neruda said of poetry, should be shared by our vast, incredible, extraordinary family of humanity. So why is it then that so many of us walk into a bookstore, which I still do, by the way, you should too, Uh, or read a magazine or an article online or watch TV or go see a movie hoping for some reflection and instead see white, see male-female, see hetero, see Ivy League, see the hero's journey. You get where I'm going here. See what we've seen before. Where are the stories that depict the complexity of our world? EV is a program hell-bent on the success of those stories. EV stands up and beside writers who are isolated, who have been cast off. We put our resources, our time, we put our money on those who have been underestimated but who are still fighting to be heard. And in doing so, we give our fellows and their books a best chance. Yes, EV is a program for writers, but it is also a program for us as readers. For every person who has looked for their story on the page, the museum wall, for every adult woman who wept into her popcorn during Wonder Woman seeing a superhero for the first time in her life. Can you imagine the pain, the joy, the relief in this? People aren't hungry for this kind of representation. They are starving for it. And so, E.V. is working to deliver. Since 1996, E.V. Fellows have published almost 50 books and boast hundreds of anthology, journal, and magazine inclusions, a more successful record than some MFA programs. E.V. also knows that books are entry points. Books offer a meeting place, a chance to understand, to grow with, to celebrate people who are different than you. In books, readers experience new realities, cultures, ideas, concerns. Regardless of their age, race, gender, income level, readers are able to consider more than they know because they are changed. And I'm not just being touchy-feely about that detail. First-person narratives result in a subconscious phenomenon that psychologists call experience-taking, where readers actually change their own behaviors and thoughts to match a character, temporarily transforming the way a reader views the world, themselves, and other social groups. While art can be cast as a kind of luxury in difficult times, this is and has always been essential work. Because it is the very thing that connects us. And I think we have a responsibility to support writers who challenge us to step outside of ourselves. I've heard myself on the phone many times in the last few weeks saying free expression programming is vulnerable in 2017. But this is organization speak and I'm tired of it. The fact is, providing citizens with the tools they need to express themselves truthfully, their worldviews, to equip people to resist the daily attacks waged on them, on their rights, is dangerous work in 2017, but Penn is doing it. And you can do this work too. If what I'm talking about resonates with you, please use the donate envelope you received in your program tonight. Tomorrow morning, pull it from your purse, the passenger seat of your car, smooth it out, find a stamp, or go online to penusa.org if you've given up on stamps. Investing in Penn, in EV, any dollar amount, $5, is an investment in diverse books, in common ground, in your own reading life. And if donating is not an option, that's okay. But I want you to help us spread the word about the work that Penn is doing, about the 2018 fellowship, and support other organizations like VIDA, like We Need Diverse Books, like VONA, like women who submit and writers of color who are demanding more from the mainstream. And please read outside your comfort zone. Small revolutionary acts like being here tonight in support of these writers matter. They turn your Facebook rants, the trip you didn't schedule to the Rust Belt, your fears into something inspiring and worthy. Thank you for listening, it's now my great pleasure to introduce author Dana Johnson.
2: Had never been a Penn Center mentor before having the honor and pleasure of working with Shinnery Woden and neither one of us knew the reason they paired us exactly. (laughs) I was nervous and a bit worried that we wouldn't be a match but once we met it was wonderfully clear why we were put together. Talking with Shinnery I was struck by her wide-ranging interests in history and politics and popular culture, struck by her wicked sense of humor, sharp observation, and most of all, struck by her refusal to be pinned down as a writer. As we discussed her ideas about subject matter, influences, and style, our conversation ranged delightfully all over the place. We talked and talked, and I was thrilled to be working with Chinnery, I said, I'm so glad you're not a weirdo. <laughs> me too, Shinnery said, and we hugged a goodbye. But, and please forgive me, Shinari, I'd like to think that we're both weirdos in the finest sense of the word. Words like unconventional, idiosyncratic, and individual are synonymous with weird. And the thrill of Shinnery's work is that it exemplifies these words, the things I strive for, the qualities I love in fiction, I loved not knowing, not even being able to guess what I would see from Shinneri on any given meeting. One week I'd be blown away by a second person short story about a reluctant medical student, rich with surprising detail and meditation on mortality. The next meeting I'd be treated to a novel excerpt that through a spirit that floats through time connects a contemporary woman clad in the red soles of Louis Vuitton with a young woman accompanying her father prospecting during the California gold rush. Or more recently, a short story of deferred, a swimming pool excursion gone wrong, leading to a life of timidity, a life deferred, and it made me think about the choices we make that shackle us to our futures. The power of Shinuri's work is not only that it flouts categorization, Not only that one would be hard-pressed to name the presumed race, gender, or age of its writer, not only that she has the fantastic ability to make the familiar strange, but that always, no matter the subject matter, readers find themselves somehow both untethered from the familiar world and still confirmed in our collective human experience, in our connections, our fears, and aspirations. I love the strange feeling of that duality, that weird, wonderful feeling. How lucky we are that we get to have that feeling tonight, thanks to Shinnery Woden.
3: Thank you, thank you, Um, thank you all for being here. This is really wonderful that you guys all braved the traffic, so thank you. Um, I am going to be reading to you from a novel excerpt from a novel I'm working on called Pitchfork Falls, and it is about a young girl who accompanies her father to Alaska during the final days of the Yukon Gold Rush. It ain't gonna be that bad. How bad can it be? It's just water. Them rivers can't be trusted, Pa says. Better be careful around it. It don't care who you are or what you are. It's got its own mind. But I've been down here before. We try to come when it ain't as many people, so we go real late at night instead of in the morning when the other campers get up. But I drank all my water on watch last night, and now my flask's empty. Pa said we didn't have time to come down this way, and I just have to hold it to the next camp. But then he also says, I got to do myself and keep drinking water with all this heavy walking and lifting. So I asked him what he wanted me to do. And he says, I can run down, fill up my packs, but I got to catch up with them before he gets back on the trail. I get down to the river fast enough, seeing I only got my packs on me. Paz Canteens are still full from last night. There's a lot of people down here now, and the sun is already pretty far up in the sky. I push past a couple men who stop to look at me funny, probably thinking I'm one of Miss Bennett's girls, wondering what I'm doing this far from the Red Onion. I bend over and put one of my bottles in the water. The rocks on the side of the river are real slippery, so I lean down to steady myself, but then I see Soapy, and my heart stops when he smiles at me, that same smile from before, and this time I know it's for me. Before I, I know I'm falling. I see the water rushing up to catch me, and it does. The cold hits me in the face like a rock. I'm shaking real hard before I can even make it back up to the surface. I ain't a great swimmer, but I think maybe I can just grab onto something, pull myself back towards the ground. My feet kick around, and then I understand what Pa was trying to tell me. It feels like the river is just going to do what it wants. My heart starts to pound real fast, and my head drops under the water, but I pop up real quick. I open my mouth to take a breath, but i must have timed it wrong cuz i didn't get no air just a mouthful of salt and water i try to spit it out but it races down my throat before i can do anything and then my head goes under again this time i don't pop up so quick this time it feels like the cold outside the water and the cold inside the water are the same and they're both working together to keep me down here my coat is so heavy now my fingers are so cold i can only catch tiny sparks of light between the waves that keep slapping me then i feel something around my neck and i think i'm done This will be the story of me, that stupid girl who fell in the water and left her pa alone on the mountain. He's gonna wish he had a boy now for sure. I feel a log brush up against me and I try to push against it or grab it, but I can tell the river already won. It's got me by the hair and the neck and I'm going wherever it wants me to go. I stop trying to resist it. I know when I'm beat. Eyes, I can see all the colors, red, green, yellow sparks dancing, running, trying to catch each other. I can hear grunts and shouts and animals calling out, and I think, maybe this is heaven. Then I feel a thump on my chest, and suddenly I hear Pa shouting. The sun comes blaring through, and I roll on my side, coughing real hard, spitting up salty, bitter-tasting water. I hear Pa shouting for people to get away from me. I'm coughing too hard to hear what anyone is saying back to him, but I think I see him push somebody, and I'm, I'm not sure. And each time I blink my eyes, it feels like it takes longer to open them back up. I look up and see Pa kneeling on the ground, holding my face in his hands. The sun is shining real bright behind him, so I can't hardly see his face. I can't tell if he's angry or scared or both, but he takes off his coat and wraps it around me. He doesn't say anything, just pulls me to my feet while I'm still coughing and coughing. I see people shaking their heads at me, at Pa. I can't hear much, but people are grumbling all around us. I think I hear someone ask what Pa was thinking, bringing a young girl up here. I try opening my eyes again, but the sun's too bright and my lids are too heavy and it's getting real hard to keep my feet under me. My knees go numb and I start sinking towards the ground again and Pa holds me tight to his chest and as it starts to go black, I think I see Soapy with his top hat in his hand, push a man out of his path and walk on into town.
4: Hi, I'm Jay Ryan Straddle. I'm the mentor of Pete Sue. It wasn't too long ago when I was where Pete Sue is today. Like Pete, I don't have an MFA, and although I've been writing my entire life, I didn't get serious about evolving my craft and submitting my work until I was well into my adulthood. Like Pete, I even applied for the EV program thing, only I didn't make it in. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's all right, if I had learned any one thing from my years as a lightly published struggling writer, it's that nothing about my writing career would have changed without the help of a lot of established writers who lent me their knowledge and time. Remembering this, when Penn asked me to be a mentor, I jumped at the chance. When I first met Pete, I thought, wow, uh, he's far more serious and advanced uh, at his stage of his writing career than I was. When I read his writing, I realized, this dude's pretty much emerged. Um, <laughs> his prose is so thoughtful and sophisticated, funny, heartfelt, and keenly observed. I believed from a writing standpoint, this mentorship's going to be easy. Yet as Penn knows, there's so much more to the writer's life than the writing. There's the performance of one's work. And you'll see tonight, that's another aspect where Pete is incredibly polished. There's the willingness and eagerness to edit, which Pete fortunately also has, and there's the love for the unknown and uncertain that a writer must commit to both in his writing and in his day-to-day life when it comes time to release his work into the world. Finally, there's also participation in a community, and Pete doesn't just show up to events, he does better than that. He shows up early and asks how he can help. His timely procurement of two extension cords recently rescued an event at 826 LA, and I don't exaggerate. (laughs) His helpful readiness to do the unglamorous work is going to make the deserved glamour of his inevitable success so gratifying and wonderful to the rest of us. In just a few short months, Pete's become more than a mentee to me. He's become someone I'm honored to know, a person I'll see again and again for years to come. A writer and participant like Pete is the lifeblood of a city's literary scene. And it speaks to the success of the Penn Emerging Voices program, that he'll be among its alumni. Through him, I'm happy to have finally made it into the program myself <laughs> like this. Thank you, Pete. And I imagine that before long, Pete will be at a podium like this, delivering such an introduction for a mentee of his own. Until then, get used to seeing Peter Sue around town at literary events. He's one of us now. And if you haven't met him yet, I'm so proud to make the introduction. He's a writer of great talent, thoughtfulness, heart, and drive. And after tonight, you're going to run out of chances to say you knew him when.
5: That's really too much, Jay Ryan, that was amazing. I don't even know, I don't know if I could. um, So I'm gonna do this thing where I'm gonna take a picture of you guys. It's just gonna be like one bright light from in the middle of of a black screen. Okay, so this is a story that I wrote, it's called Mission Concept. It's a little bit experimental. Um, so, I don't know. (laughs) Mission concept. The astronaut's job is to leave the Earth. The astronaut sometimes leaves the Earth to travel to the moon. The moon is very far away. Sometimes the astronaut travels further away than the moon, much further. On these trips, the astronaut stays away for a very long time. The astronaut sometimes does not return. The astronaut is sometimes a fighter pilot. The astronaut is sometimes a geologist, sometimes an astronomer, sometimes an electrical engineer. Sometimes the special has a job specific to being an astronaut, like mission specialist, or mission commander, or payload specialist, or administrative services manager. Sometimes the astronaut has a job that is not specific to being an astronaut. Sometimes the astronaut is a high school history teacher, an ordinary person making an extraordinary impact. Sometimes the astronaut is an actor in a science fiction movie where he goes alone on a 40-year mission to a faraway solar system. When the astronaut returns, he walks a long, gray corridor (laughs) to meet his lover. He is surprised at what he finds. The astronaut has grown old, but his lover has stayed young. This is scientifically inaccurate, (laughs) yet it is what happens. The astronaut touches his fingertips to his lover's face. He stares. He recognizes in her young face her old eyes. He wants her. She's all he wants. She says, all is well. My lover has returned. He looks at his hand, still on her cheek. His hand is gray and dry, like bone. His hand looks like a dead person's hand, a ghost hand. He says, no. His lover closes her eyes and turns her face. He takes his hand away. She backs away, head down. Then, without looking at him, she leaves. The astronaut's boss steps forward out of the shadows. He says to the astronaut, you, quite an incredible astronaut. (laughs) Still other times, the astronaut is an import-export guy. He is the father of two. He goes to China and sometimes to Vietnam. These trips are business trips. He goes many times a year. When he goes, he stays gone for a long time. Sometimes when he returns... He checks into a motel and pretends he's still away. (laughs) When he comes home, he goes to dinner with his family. Everyone is nice to him. His wife is nice to him. His son is nice to him. His daughter is nice to him. They are respectful. They are thankful. They ask the astronaut about his trip. The astronaut answers. He thinks he has a lot to tell them, but he doesn't. Everything he has to say, he's able to say in about three minutes. Then, for the rest of the dinner, everyone talks about the food, and then also amongst themselves. The morning after the dinner, the astronaut plays golf. He's not good at golf. He doesn't even like it. His friends like it. They're not astronauts. (laughs) They are friendly, though, and they are very funny. The astronaut laughs. It's good to laugh. It's, it's all you can do sometimes, and then the astronaut doesn't understand what's happening. The astronaut's kids are older than he remembers. His son is gay. His son is tall, taller than the astronaut. The astronaut's son is a grown man. The astronaut's son is a tall, grown, gay man. The astronaut thinks this should upset him, but it doesn't upset him. His daughter tells him not to be upset. The astronaut tells her he's not upset. His daughter says, okay then. She then tells him she's applying to colleges. The colleges she's applying to are not selective, but they are all expensive. Her grades are average. The astronaut thinks, he'll have to make more money. (laughs) The astronaut's wife says, "'There's enough money.' "'Yes,' says the astronaut, "'but still, I should make more.' (laughs) "'There's enough,' says the astronaut's wife. "'There's enough,' says the astronaut's son. "'There's enough,' says the astronaut's daughter. "'There's enough,' says the astronaut, "'but still,' The astronaut's job is to leave the Earth. The astronaut travels very far away. The astronaut may not return. When he does return, he'll walk a long gray corridor. He'll find he has grown old, but everyone on the Earth has stayed young. This is scientifically impossible, yet It is what happens. Thank you.
6: No wonder everyone kept adjusting the microphone. It's very close to your face. Hi, I'm Jade. i introducing Kieran Khan. <laughs> so originally, I wasn't gonna do it. After two months on book tour, and knowing that there were many more months to come, I was in automatic say no mode and I was ready to resist all flattery and deflect all guilt. (laughs) Emerging Amanda was very convincing, of course, and I have always thought of Emerging Voices as like a very glamorous literary fraternity with its long line of mentors whose books I'd actually read and its cool mix of parties and craft sessions and author meetings. But honestly, I was just too tired until I saw this sentence in Amanda's email. Kieran is working on a novel titled Bludgeon about a Pashtun American lesbian who is a competitive mixed martial artist. Wait, what? (laughs) Okay, so I had to at least read the sample. And as soon as I did, I was hooked. She had this remarkable mix of control and curiosity that didn't seem like it belonged to an emerging voice, but rather to one who had already found her place. So here's a few lines from that first writing sample. When did you notice your mm, sexual attraction to women? The doctor spoke slowly, as though Bresna doesn't speak English, as though she knew the words in Pashto. And then Bresna replies, I don't suppose I ever really noticed it, until everyone else did, I mean. I suppose I pay attention to what moves me. And in a sense, that's what we all do as writers, pay attention to what moves us. As Kieran continued to turn in new sections about Brushna, it became clear that violence, its history and its allure, the way that it can be twisted within the bloodlines of a family, and the way that it can be both toxic and blindingly pure Messy and addictive, that, that that was what moved Kieran as a writer. And violence and its after effects is a dangerous topic that she's chosen to explore with Brushna's story. Newness is always a lure for me, for all of us, and Kieran's approach to this topic is totally singular. And that might be because Kieran herself is pretty singular. Continu- the first time we met, she explained to me that yes, She had considered continuing her training so that she could try to go pro as a fighter, but she had to decide between that and a degree in higher mathematics. (laughs) Math apparently won out, but it didn't keep her from playing a lot of club rugby. Um, So all of that, and she can actually write too. And even more important, she can rewrite, which is like the most important thing a writer can do. Um, I haven't taught a lot of writing classes, but I'm pretty sure that most young writers do not respond to a barrage of suggestions with great enthusiasm, and also, seemingly hours later, a fresh draft that has somehow been re-envisioned with such confidence and polish that it could be part of a finished manuscript. It is a rare gift. More than anything else, her writing is brave, and raw and full of heart. And it is my absolute honor and joy to introduce Kieran Khan.
7: Thank you, Jade. I'll be reading two scenes from my novel in progress, which is, in fact, titled, Bludgeon. The trouble with girls fighting is no one wants to see a pretty girl get beat up. The man scrutinized Breshna's face and crossed his arms. And no one cares what ugly girls do. Breshna didn't bristle. She didn't blush. She knew she was an ugly girl long before some balding muscle head in a tank top said so. She didn't want to be a bunny anyway. She wanted to fight. Well, an ugly girl who can kick some ass is better than an ugly girl who can't do shit. He chuckled, his gray eyes crinkling. True, true. When he smiled, he looked older. The man was probably in his 40s, but he was aging in New Mexico years. (laughs) Something about the sun and thin air weathered faces. So you want to train competitively, huh? He wasn't asking. Why do you want to do that? I think I could be good at it. Her voice held steady, but her gaze dropped to the floor. Bresna had been training for so long, it felt like the only thing she was good at. He nodded, still sizing her up. There's no money in it, especially for women. She bit her lip. Really, she wanted to know she could survive anything. And Taekwondo didn't make her feel that way anymore. She didn't want him to see the doubt that settled in her like fine, high-desert dust, coating the world with a grainy film until, before she knew it, nothing felt safe. Breshna shook her head to clear her thoughts. She looked up at him. Money is money, a little bit better than nothing. Fair enough, he grinned and extended his hand. You can call me Dan or Coach. His hand dwarfed hers, his grip too firm. Breshna shook his hand hard and envied how comfortable he appeared, leaning against the front desk. You got time right now? Breshna spread her arms and puffed her chest out. I'm wide open. Finally, she'd come dressed for a workout just in case. Great, come on in, let's see where you're at. The late afternoon sun cast the gym in an orange glow as Dan came around the clear plastic counter to give her the tour. This place, the Albuquerque Kickboxing Academy, was different from the dojong. No bowing, top-heavy, sweaty guys with military-looking fades, no flags, no bowing, No uniforms. The mats, where most of the classes happened, gave off a faint and familiar rubber smell in the humid, stale air. Just like the dojang, mirrors lined one wall. But unlike her old stomping grounds, the back corner was blocked off by what looked like chain-link fence covered in black vinyl. The cage. Dan noticed her staring. We'll work you up to that. For starters, you'll be in our regular kickboxing class, hitting targets and building your fitness. No sparring just yet. Brashna was a little miffed. She'd been sparring for over a decade in Taekwondo, much longer than most of these brawlers had been training, longer than MMA had even been a sport. She bit her tongue. Sounds good. He handed her a pair of loner boxing gloves and put on his mitts. We'll go through the paperwork in a sec, but first, I want to check your form. She got into fight stance, legs staggered for balance, knees bent and soft, her weight centered but light on her feet so she could move left, right, or change stance. Bresna hit the mitts hard, but she was slow. Without wraps, her old hand injuries stung on impact, and the heavy gloves felt like trying to punch while holding dumbbells. It was easier to hit than to keep her guard up. Taekwondo hadn't done much for her upper body. When they switched to kicking, Bresna felt a mix of relief and excitement. This she could do. Taekwondo was mostly kicks, and Breshna knew 15 years of kicking, breaking boards, and precision striking showed. Dan seemed impressed, and seeing that fueled her. He told her kicks were for longer distance, while punches were for closer range. But Bresna knew contradict kick his head while standing close enough to kiss him. <laughs> she wouldn't contradict him, though. He'd see for himself, eventually. So this is a couple years later. A couple days after the fight, Bresna dragged herself to the bathroom to take a look at the damage. The light was off, but she could still see that she looked like a Picasso. Her nose veered to the left in a dent, a clear break, even with all the swelling. She could smell it, the inside of it, something rotten and copper. At least it wasn't gonna do much to her looks. It was always beautiful people who talked about looks as something not physical, but they didn't actually think ugly people were worth anything. They just wanted to be seen as more than hot. They wanted it all. Breshna forced a smile and winced as she saw the bones above the bridge of her nose separate, her skin dipping into the space between. It was ugly. Ugly people know exactly what beauty is. How quickly ugly brings a girl to her knees, how it breaks her, the distaste on people's faces, the random meanness, the cold indifference, till she's willing to do anything she can to make them approve. It hurt to smile. Reshna couldn't quite get the corners of her mouth up high as they should have been. The swelling like a wall she couldn't force her mouth past. Nobody smiles at ugly without an angle. She poked the swelling on the right side of her face. Her hand trembled. A wave rose in her stomach. She ran the cold water from the sink. If she was a pretty girl, she'd be heartbroken. The only way out for ugly girls that wasn't pathetic was to dig your heels in. Be ferociously ugly, monstrous. If people recoil anyway, let them be a little bit afraid, too. With her eyes only, Breshna laughed at herself in the mirror, careful not to move her mouth again. A wave rose, and she put her hand in the cold water, grounding. She let it run over her palm. Don't vomit. The pressure will be excruciating. She put her cold, wet hand on her right cheek, careful not to touch her nose. The doctor said it would go back to center once the swelling went down, but Breshna was skeptical. Black puddles ringed her eyes in bruised crescents, but luckily that was drainage from her nose, not an orbital, not too bad. Breshna knew she looked rough, but she got dressed anyway. She had at least a week off. The grocery didn't want her stocking produce in front of customers, looking like her boyfriend had put her in place. She figured she'd head to the gym. Where else could she go?
8: Thank you.
9: Hi everyone, my name's Amelia Gray, I've had an astonishing amount of coffee, and I'm here to introduce Jessica Shoemaker. I'm going to make the mic lower for you too, honey, all right. (laughs) My introduction to Jessica Shoemaker, the writer, came in the form of a snippet from her application packet. And uh, that snippet featured a first line that I've come to know as a Shoemaker classic. Here it is. He had both legs when we first met. Jessica <laughs> It's not mine. Uh, my, introducing, my, my introduction to Jessica Shoemaker, the mentee, came at the same time as my own introduction to the Emerging Writers Program, and so we got to experience it for the first time together. And I'll tell you this, as pleasurable as they are, as rare and wonderful, the writing life isn't usually about professional coursework, excellent reading lists, and challenging vocal exercises. I know that for a fact because I went to Arizona State. (laughs) Sorry. Um, The writing life is sometimes about packed readings and fun parties, and thank God it is, or else it would only be about one thing, the chair. The desk, the empty page, the process. I think of a quote from Kim Deal's husband, a man I know only as Kim Deal's husband, uh, who I bring up because Jessica and I are both Pixies fans. Here's the quote. Uh, When they were mixing down Doolittle, Kim would come home and be like, Ugh! It took us forever to do this one song. It definitely went from all fun to all work. That familiar ug of writing brought Jessica and I together in mentorship. Sometimes our meetings offered as much mutual value in conversation as they did instruction. We talked about making fiction work as a full-time job, how we both looked forward to our free time and wanted to make the most of it, Jessica spoke of her students. She teaches sixth grade in San Pedro, and I talked about my own new full-time job and the balance beam we both walk between art and life. Um, We talked about performance and reading, if it's better for the audience to hear a whole story or the best bits of a longer piece. We have a lot in common, how we can't help but think of you all. (laughs) Our artistic leanings find common ground as well. Jessica's writing has a wry, dark, stark sense of feeling with care dog spending their money on bus tickets to Los Angeles and sniffing out their stairwells for bits. They're tough and tender, these characters, their own history following them like ghosts. Jessica's senses story has a spiritual mentorship of Lucia Berlin and Lydia Davis who I think would both approve of a character dreaming of Guns N' Roses on the back end of an underwhelming tandem bicycle date. (laughs) I'm proud to know Jessica Shoemaker, the community worker and literary citizen. She's volunteered with Students Run LA for eight years, a nonprofit that trains at-risk youth to run the LA Marathon. This summer, she's going to New York for a conference on sustainability and education. She's the hardest working woman in San Pedro, as far as I'm concerned, and I can't wait to see where she takes her stark and fabulous ironic sense. I've got one more Pixies quote, one with a sense of feeling I wish for Jessica and her work from here on out to permeate her writing and her bearing as she goes on to build a collection of stories. This wish, this benediction, if you will, comes from frontman Black Francis, on the occasion of the band listening to their first collection of songs. We just sat around playing the demo tape over and over again, he said. We were all just like, fuck, this is good. (laughs) If they don't get this, fuck them. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Jessica Shoemaker.
8: so thank you amelia that was awesome you are the best and thank you all for being here so this is part of a short story called puncture i'm walking home from the same way i do every day 15th for four blocks turn left where the sidewalk is cracked like a lightning bolt follow the river ways then up towards the hill i pass the yellow house the white the blue the house with the one-eyed cat and the couch on the porch with the stuffing foaming out its back then the one where that old man used to live. Once he had his garage open and called out to me, said he had a shirt drop behind the washer and needed a little arm to reach back there because his kept getting stuck. I ran straight home, feeling too smart to be tricked. But mama said there was nothing heroic about how I acted, said he was just an old man that needed some help, told me I had to go back, but I hid in the weeds by the river instead. I passed the power lines where my granddaddy taught me they hiss louder when it's humid. He wore overalls and rolled his own cigarettes. He'd listen to baseball on Sunday afternoons from an old plastic radio that sat on the yellow Formica kitchen table while I sifted through the grass outside for sow bugs. Sometimes he'd leave the kitchen window open and the smell of his cigarettes would would drift out sweet and thin and it smelled like a lot of years all mixed together. That was a long time ago, though. When he died, I tried to make mama feel better. He was lucky, I said, didn't feel a thing. Lucky men don't whisper their lives, she said. He never did get what belonged to him. Today, Susanna is walking with me. The wind has a way of picking her hair up for a bit, then laying it right back on her shoulders. Why mine, I got to keep pushing out of my face. She starts talking about how she heard that Jimmy was asking if I was going to the dance tonight. She says, I have to go, because it'll be my only chance since Beth likes him too, and nobody would want to be with a guy after he'd been with Beth. There's There's no point to her telling me all this. Mama says, I still have another year before I can start up with boys. Says that a girl who's got pictures of movie stars taped to her walls isn't going to be making any good decisions anytime soon. Susanna's got an idea. If I say I'm going over for dinner tonight, mama can't check since they got their phone shut off again. Susanna says Beth's trash. I nod so she won't trade me in for one of those shiny shoes girls again. Susanna's always been like this, like standing on ice, so I don't tell her about watching Beth smoke behind the library at lunch. How she's always leaning against the wall and staring off into the sky like there's something out there besides just clouds like there's something out there that's hers. I try to see it too, but I, never, but I never see anything other than ordinary sky. I don't tell Susanna that I wish I could be like that, that I could see what's mine. I round my corner and Susanna rounds hers. Sometimes I wonder what would happen if I took a different way home, if just for once I went down a different street, if something magical would happen. Like maybe there's a house I never knew about a mansion with a wraparound porch and horses you could ride for free, or a tiny cottage carved into a tree with a tiny man outside handing out balloons the size of tangerines. Beth is leaning against the chain-link fence outside my house. She's got one leg bent behind and a boot heel bouncing off the metal. She's got hips and calves and shoulders that let her bra strap slip just a little bit off. Susanna says she's got to be older. Must have been held back before she moved here. Just wanted to give you a chance not to show up tonight, she says. You seem nice enough. Nicer than that girl you hang around with anyways. Maybe I'm not nice, I think. Maybe I'm tough, too. I'm not even sure if it's true, I say. Jimmy liking me is only something Susanna's been saying. I'm just here to warn you, she says, and walks away. When she's out of sight... I lean against the fence and bring an invisible cigarette to my lips, breathe in deep, and try pulling the whole world into my lungs before I drop it to the ground and stomp out the invisible embers. Mama's taken a casserole out of the freezer, which will make she's still wearing her name tag. She rubs her shoulder, and I can tell she's tired, which will make slide in the lie easier. I've never been quite sure if we moved here to help my granddaddy out, or if we came because we needed the help. But either way, once he passed, there's been a quiet that breaks in every evening and refuses to leave until morning. It used to be when I was too scared to sleep, I'd wait until I heard the floor squeak under his feet. He never could make it through the night without needing to pee, and in that window, when I knew I wasn't the only one awake in the world, I'd fall asleep quick. Now it's nothing but quiet all night, and if I start thinking about what could be crunching across all those dead leaves out back, I know I'll just be stuck scared until morning when mama gets up to make her coffee. Mama says a sin don't feel like a sin until you're caught doing it. But it's hard to look at her even though I'm not caught yet. Susanna asked me over for dinner tonight, I say. Just be home early June, she says, and goes to sit in front of the TV. I start thinking of Beth and what she's planning on doing if I show up. I start thinking of her pulling my hair and yanking at me. If she tears at my clothes and I'm left with parts of me showing, I'll never be able to live it down. Jimmy has a freckle on his cheek and bangs that fall over his left eye. It could be me he's dancing with tonight under all those swirling lights. I could be the one in the middle of it all. I sneak past Mama and into the garage. I look for a pocket knife in my granddaddy's toolbox. The sharpest thing in there is a screwdriver. But there's pain when I push its point against my ribs. I slip the screwdriver into my back pocket. Maybe I'm not just a whisper. I could be the noise in the night instead of the child scared in the dark.
10: My name is Douglas Kearney, and it's my privilege to read Ashaki Jackson's introduction of her mentee. mentee, Soleil David. But first, yeah, please. Yeah. But first, a few words. I met Soleil about four years ago when she asked to audit an MFA workshop in poetry. This is an uncommon. CalArts students often sit in on courses. In these cases, my custom is to let an auditor participate in all but the submission of poetry for discussion. Few stick around so long, figuring that the sole purpose of a workshop is to be read. Soleil surprised me in a couple of ways. One, she rigorously workshopped the enrolled students' poems. And two, she wasn't a student, but a staff member. We began meeting in my office to discuss her poetry, recommended reading, prompt for new poems, and over that time, I am honored to say Soleil felt I understood her work and her questions well enough to write recommendations for her, including one for this very fellowship and program, both of which I have come to admire deeply. I will leave it to Ashaki Jackson, who penned the official introduction I'm about to read to describe the state of Soleil's current poetics. And then you will hear Soleil speak them for herself. But I will say this, I am proud to have been of any use at all to this emerging voice, whose commitment to the craft of poetry is rivaled only by her devotion to truth, no matter how hard earned or hard to tell. And now Ashaki Jackson's introduction. Children of activists bear a special inheritance. Their parents gift them memories of survival. We listen to them pivot, to the pivot, when life changed and being still meant death. For my family, it was six years prior to my birth when Louisiana law enforcement hunted my father for his role in bringing financial and staff support to the local black university. Through his stories, I carry the scent of chemicals, the tear gas used to force my parents, college students at the time, from the administration building and into a barricade of armed officers. I carry the sound of gunfire intended for my father. Soleil David, too, is the keeper of her family's beleaguered escape. In this, we are kin. Soleil can tell you the texture of the marshland through which her parents waited to escape persecution under Ferdinand Marcos's torture-laden dictatorship. Her parents have passed down to her the hollow sound of boot to flesh first heard as the president's men battered and then captured her father in a garden. She can tell you the scent of the blooms, the time of day, and the humidity's tack. Upon reading Soleil's narrative poetry, I understood that my mentee had lessons for me. She would teach me how to craft textured yet honest memories to which our families would say, yes, that is how it happened. These memories would become clean and artful despite their blood. They would be strengthened through her coursework and program instructor's guidance on how to echo her parents' accounts. Indeed, Soleil's work is familiar. It speaks to oppression and distrust, a well-dressed and inept government and uprising, all quite relevant to each of us in this space. In the safe space afforded by Penn Center and the Emerging Voices Fellowship, she experimented with the type of truth-telling and calling out for which her might have lost their lives. But oh, how comfortable she has become during the program year in speaking her family's mind with a lushness and resistance that only the Philippine landscape can reflect. Both the cicadas and guns have a song for the trees. Bruises bloom among flowers. She gives us easy language that comforts and rebels, much like the mendacities her parents told her siblings while fleeing the country. Two, she gifts us biting questions without answers. She asks, what does it mean to be so ready to flee a country you would die for? And Papa, Akala Koba Matapeng Tayo, Ebakit Tayo or, Papa, aren't we courageous? Then why are we running? The memories of survival are rhetorical. After a year of cleaning memories, Soleil carries what she, saw, what she awed. What, as children of activists, is our responsibility, if not to tell these stories again in the most prolonged protest, a written one? It is my pleasure to introduce my kin and teacher Saleh David.
11: down here where everything is just a variation on humidity the pests multiply rapidly we have stopped fighting ducks flopping down like so much prey the man does well for us he started leaving scraps and the next day more we would admit to tame Sniffing loyalty, but for the nightly howls beyond the many cars, their guts scattered as if a pack of wolves have come. The man works with the same hands he uses to pat our furs. The man works until a car lets out a low growl. Steady, as if challenging us to a fight. Thank you everyone for coming. It means a lot to me. So um, as Doug um, has said, um, or Ashaki has said through Doug, um, (laughs) in the 70s, uh, Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law in the Philippines, and um, it ushered almost a decade of torture, disappearances, and extrajudicial killings. A curfew was imposed and the free press was curtailed. Many college students went underground to fight against the dictatorship and my father was one of them. This poem reflects on that. Guerrilla. In the beginning, a bamboo in the center of the universe. The center of the universe, the Philippines. Sari Manok pecks at Bamboo, and out comes Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos, awakened from dreams of gold-finned dragons. My first passport photo. My face, the roundness of a world I was too young to be afraid of. So young, dark hands are seen holding me up to the background. A pronounced against my dark curly hair. Newborn baby paying father a prison visit. He likes to tell me that I was the only one he ever got to see so young. I grew up, an escape at the ready. Six green passports, some cash in the drawer. What does it mean to be so ready to flee? a country you would die for. When we say going underground, we really mean going up the mountains. It's the difference between sweat and mist. Are those your long-dead father's arms come to take you home? He's convinced you don't belong here. Ingat, he whispers as he takes you limbs dragging. My mother was the first warrior I knew, Genghis Khan in billowy skirts long enough to hide in, keeper of books, healed marcher at student walkouts, pregnant marcher at convocation, calm marcher through shooting gallery. Presenting my father's release papers in dress blues, pearls, a war sigil, brooch, the stars of a general. On the day that my father was to be caught the second time, Imelda herself came to the house. Iconic, terno, quaff, pearl earrings, expensive perfume with a finish of carrion filled the foyer. As my father was brought to his knees in the garden outside, blood spoiling rows of rose bushes, Lola was saying she had no idea where he was. What a shame, dictator's wife lamented, bejeweled fingers clutching her fan. I want to wear a terno as grand as Imelda's. Butterfly sleeves quick to flight, a white I could sink my teeth into. Sublime draped over the shoulder, multicolored threads weaved smooth. I want my nails catching on those stray threads, my hands willing themselves into cloths. Years later, I would see her in church. A tall woman losing nothing of that beauty queen bearing, the updo, the terno, the bodyguards in tow, the reality only an aging of the myth. Time brings a wheelchair following close, an iron grip on an aide's arm. Dictator's wife, such frailty such pains to maintain the illusion of immortality. I hold my tongue, hold this pit that wants to find you. I would move on, dear dictator, if you could show me the circuitous weavings of your bank dealings. Bear my poverty with grace, dearest leader, if you'd surrender the Barong Tagalog on your back and the $10 billion you owe me, I would laugh low from my belly if you'd hand me the shovel to dig up your grave. Among the heroes, your waxen bones disgrace, oh pride of my country, you. I could maybe find a hint of humor. Thank you, everyone.
12: going to
7: lie.
12: You know what I believe? I believe that not being able to tell our stories makes us sick. It creates a dis-ease of body and spirit. It is the resistance that Stephen Pressfield speaks of in The War of Art, how it deforms our spirit, stunting us, and making us less than we were born to be. I believe this to be a true statement. And it happens for many reasons. Maybe you've learned that you're not good enough, or smart enough, or relevant, or connected. Others may say that you are too brown, or too poor, or too old, or too queer, or too broken. Maybe you've been told that your stories don't matter, or that you don't deserve to be heard. This denial of the unlived life within us guides our actions, often causing us to circle the earth in the opposite direction of our true creative selves. For some of us, that simply means living a satisfactory life, always wondering, what if? But for others, it leads to suffering. Personally, I would argue that getting lost from your own narrative is an immeasurable disaster. Emerging Voices, a program supported in its entirety by generous grants and donations, I hearken back to that envelope that Michelle mentioned, gives writers an opportunity to find their way back to their stories, to lay down sentences like roadmaps, to find not only what is lost, but a new way through. Being awarded the fellowship is a call to action, challenging the voice in your head that says, I can't, replacing it with, I am. I am a writer, and I have something to say. Shinry, Pete, Kieran, Jessica, and Soleil, I can't look at you, What an honor it has been for me to take this journey with you and to be one among the many who are listening as you tell your stories. Congratulations. We can clap. Yeah. Thank you. I'd like to say thank you to Libby Flores for getting promoted. A special thank you to our mentors, Dana, Jay Ryan, Jade, Amelia, and Ashaki, to Doug Kearney, to Alex and the two Dougs for our masterclasses, to the Skirball for hosting us, and lastly, thank you all for coming. Let's give all of us a big round of applause. Now, does everybody have to pee? Yeah. Uh, Let's party. Please join us in the courtyard for the reception.